Ephesians chapter 2, again today, we'll look at verses 14 through the end of the chapter. I said Ephesians, that was uh, several months ago. Hebrews chapter 2, verses... I got in the shower with my glasses on this week too, which never ever happens. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's begin with a a little review. One of the important words in Hebrews is the word better. Appears again and again. Jesus is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. His priesthood is better than Aaron's priesthood. The covenant that he ratifies is a better covenant. His people have a better hope based on better promises. The first two chapters, especially, describe how Jesus is better than angels, and that in two principal ways. Jesus is better than angels regarding his relationship to God. He's the son, they're the servants. He's creator, they're creatures. He's the king to whom worship is due, they're the ministers who give that worship. And these first two chapters, especially at the end of chapter one and then in chapter two, we also find that Jesus is better than angels as regards his relationship to humans. Because of him, the world to come will be subject to man, not to angels. He was made like humans in every way, but he was not made like angels. And it is humans he helps, not angels. In verse 14, two weeks ago, we saw that since the children, that's us, human beings, have flesh and blood, in the Greek the word order is inverted, blood and flesh, he also shared it. He became blood and flesh. We'll get more of that when we get to verse 17. And he was made blood and flesh in order to destroy, or the word can mean to put out of business, to incapacitate the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, we didn't have time last time to think about this, but in what sense does the devil have the power of death? I thought that only God possessed that power. Some scholars believe that our author equates the devil with the biblical angel of death from the Old Testament. They see the devil as having the power to inflict death either directly with God's leave or indirectly by tempting people to sin since the wages of sin is death. Well, that may be what's in mind here, but I suspect our author was thinking more generally of the devil using death to serve his purpose which is described in the next verse, is holding people in or subjecting them to slavery. The fear of death subjects people to slavery, but slavery to what? 
to the devil? That is not biblical usage at all. Then to death itself, slaves to death? We have nothing like that in the Bible either. Then what? Well, look again at the text. The devil holds or has, it's the Greek word ekein, means to have, has the power, and this particular word for power is never used anywhere else in the Bible of anyone except God. The devil has the power of death and uses it in order to subject people to slavery. Slavery to what? I think the most likely answer is slavery to sin. People cope with the fear of death and the powerless and joylessness and emptiness that foreshadow it in life by serving sin. They're enslaved by it. They cannot not serve it. Death, the Bible tells us, entered the world through sin. And sin reigns, it rules, in or by death. We die because we sin, and we sin because we'll die, and we cannot not do either. We're caught between the proverbial rock and hard place with no possibility of extricating ourselves. And then into this bleak picture enters the captain and hero of salvation in order to, verse 15, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There is no doubt that freedom from the fear of death is linked to freedom from the reign of sin. If sin rules our lives, Fear will dwell in our hearts. But the way to deal with that problem is not to drive sin out of your life by willpower, but to invite Jesus into your heart by faith. The idea that Jesus sets people free, and the word, by the way, is used of the uh, manumission of slaves, as well as in other ways, the idea that Jesus sets people free is repeated often in Scripture. In the Gospel of Luke's first account of Jesus' public teaching, Jesus says that he was sent to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Later he told his hearers that if he, the Son, were to set them free, they would be free indeed. In Romans, Paul repeatedly speaks of Christ's followers being set free from sin and from slavery to sin. He insists that Christians have not received the old slavery spirit that leads back to fear. In Galatians, he warns believers not to let themselves be enslaved again, not after what Jesus has done for them. Jesus is the freedom giver. But he must give it, you can't buy it. Above the gates at Auschwitz and Dachau and all the major concentration camps with the exception of Buchenwald. The Nazis posted signs that read, Arbeit macht frei. Work makes free. The signs were meant to instill in prisoners the false hope that if they would only work hard enough, they would eventually be liberated. Of course, it was a lie. But it's the same lie that many religious people believe today. Your works, however religious they are, however good they are, will never liberate you. 
It's a lie. We need a liberator. Only Jesus, by his death for us, can set us free. Are you free or enslaved? Still mercilessly tyrannized by the desires that St. Peter says, war against the soul? Work won't make you free. But a living faith in Jesus will. Now with verse 16... We return one final time to this running comparison with angels. Angels will be mentioned two more times in the book, but this is the end of all of those comparisons. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. We know very little about what God has done or is doing to help angels. We don't even know if angels need help. We may long to look into these things, just as angels long to look into the things that concern us, but we're not given much information. What we do know is that the Son helps humans. Helps. The Greek word there means and is often translated as takes hold of. It's the word that St. Matthew used in the story about Peter when he tried to walk on water. Remember when he panicked and he began to sink? Jesus I quote, reached out his hand and caught him. Caught him translates this very word. When the faithful are sinking, he catches them. He takes them by the hand. When Jesus took hold of us, he didn't do so half-heartedly. When he took hold of us, he took on our humanity. He took on blood and flesh. He went the whole way. He was, verse 17, made like his brothers in every way. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. See, he wasn't made like Hercules, who could slay monsters because he was endowed with strength that was beyond anything human. He wasn't made with nerves of steel. Just read the account of Gethsemane. He wasn't made like Superman, impervious to pain or injury. He was made like us. That means he got hungry, like we do. He got tired. He experienced fear. He knew sadness and frustration. We think he could handle these things better because he had the advantage of being perfect. He was sinless. But I think our sins have blunted our experience of pain. We cannot feel pain and sorrow to the degree that he felt them. We don't even hurt perfectly, but he did. He experienced the whole gamut of pain and pleasure, of emotions, both pleasant and painful, to a degree that we will never thank God because of him. No. He knew what it was like to grow up in a home where there was never enough money. He knew what it was like to share a home with brothers and sisters, to put up with petty inconveniences, with slights and insults. He understood hard work. Carpenters worked hard. They carried their own lumber, which they sawed and planed themselves. They went home at night with sore muscles and swollen joints from swinging axes and pulling saws and from working mallet and chisel. No doubt he made tools and chairs and tables and desks for people who didn't pay on time, for some who didn't pay at all. 
He understood disappointment and betrayal. He was made like his brothers in every way. He didn't stand off to the side and watch what we go through. He joined us. When he helped us, he took hold of us, and it was with human hands. No one, not mother or father, spouse or friend, understands your situation better than Jesus. Not even you yourself. He understands our life because he lived it. He also understands our death because he died it. Some religions teach that Christ didn't really die. He only seemed to die. Death is below his dignity. And indeed, death has almost nothing to do with dignity. It's dirty, ugly, smelly business. But that's our author's point. When he took hold of man to help him, he didn't let go. Not even to avoid death. He saw death's shadow grow long, and he knew that it was going to overtake him. Have you had that experience yet? He experienced it too. He felt what we feel, death stripping everything away from him, friends, joys, hopes. He felt what it's like to be all alone, and this beyond comprehension, what it's like to be forgotten by God. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt what humans feel because he was human, because he was made like us in every way. It's a great mystery, but the one who is fully God became fully man, He who ruled from heaven died on earth, and he died like a man, as they say, because he was a man. The text says that he had to be made like his brothers in every way. The Greek is something like he owed it. The verb is to owe. He owed it to become like his brothers. The purpose for which Christ came to earth required a genuine incarnation. He owed it. There was a price to pay, and he paid it. But a price to pay for what? Look at verse 17. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. We're only in chapter 2, but here for the second time, our author introduces one of his most important themes. Jesus Christ is the great high priest who makes it possible for a holy God to live with sinful people. In the word order of the Greek text, the word merciful receives special stress. It's something like, if you just take the word order, a merciful he might become and faithful high priest. One of Judaism's great ancient thinkers held that the high priest should never show emotion. He will have his feelings, he wrote, of pity under control. But our priest is merciful because he was made like us in every way. He knows. He understands. One of the great theological 
terms in the New Testament appears in this verse. And it's rendered in the NIV as make atonement. The Greek word behind that translation means to turn away anger. The idea here is that God hates sin. He hates it. It makes him angry. But our high priest turned away his anger. That idea is very unpopular theologically today. Many people find it distasteful. They don't want a God who is angry at sin. And their own experience of anger explains it. It's been so frightening and painful that they cannot imagine that a good God could ever be angry. So they don't want a God who is angry at sin. I'm glad we don't always get what we want. If you have trouble imagining a God who is angry at sin, try to imagine one who's not. A God who says to the man who molests children, "Eh, forget about it. It's no big deal. A God who says to Hitler, everyone makes mistakes. A God who yawns and turns away when women are raped in Sudan. As men's arms are cut off in the Ivory Coast with machetes, as innocent children are turned into sex slaves in Burkina Faso. Can you imagine a good God who doesn't get angry when the rich exploit the poor, when the powerful crush the weak, when the clever deceive the simple? You may want a God who is not angry at sin, but you don't have one. And that presents us with a problem. Because it's not just Jerry Sandusky and Adolf Hitler who've sinned. It's you and me, too. But the God who is angry at sin loves sinners. So in a procedure so advanced that only the Son of God himself could perform it, the sinner has been separated from his sin. God's anger can still be leveled at sin without destroying the sinner. And that's because of the work of the merciful high priest. Mercy, as the scriptures teach, triumphs over judgment because of our Savior. Now look at verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When our author says that he was made like us in every way, he includes the idea that he was tempted like us. We'll see more of that when we get a couple chapters down through the book. Notice the word suffered. Not here applied to the cross, but to the temptations that he endured. He suffered when he was tempted. Resisting temptation is painful. That's not something we often think about. Resisting temptation is painful. There's suffering involved. And no one experienced that suffering to the extent that Jesus experienced it. You see, the way to escape suffering and temptation is to give in to the temptation. That Jesus never did. Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist everything but temptation. 
He wrote, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. He and all those who follow his example suffer little when they're tempted because they give in quickly. But here's the thing to get. You can either suffer during temptation because you resist it, or you can suffer after temptation because you don't. So here's the take home. And we'll start with this last verse and then work our way backwards. When we resist temptation and suffer because of it, Jesus, our high priest, can and will help us. We can choose his help or we can neglect it. We can suffer during temptation because we resist or suffer after temptation because we don't. And the question is, which do you prefer? Even if you eventually fall in the temptation. And by the way, I think every moment you resist is a victory. Every moment you resist is a victory which strengthens you. But even if you fall, you, if you belong to Christ, have a high priest who makes atonement for your sins. Go to him for forgiveness and a fresh start with confidence because he is merciful and he understands. If you never resist, something's wrong. Your faith is in the wrong place, in your abilities perhaps, or in religion, but not in Jesus, the captain of our salvation. Don't live as if you haven't been set free. When you trusted in Jesus Christ and gave your life to follow him, things really changed for you. You really changed. You were, verse 15, set free. You now share life with the one who resisted temptation to the point of death. Don't live as though you're still in slavery. This year, the New York Times ran a feature on a 51-year-old ex-con named Robert Salzman. Salzman spent his childhood in uh, horrid conditions and then spent his adult life behind bars. But in 2001, he was released from prison. He got out and he found that freedom was hard to bear. He was unable to keep up on his rent, uh, kept getting kicked out of places, often spent time on the streets or in homeless shelters. But this past year, Salzman had this grace-like experience. He was riding the subway in New York City when the writer-director Rashad Ernesto Green found him, just saw him on the subway. And he was looking for someone to play a tough-looking ex-con in a movie that he was about to film. So he auditioned him, and to everyone's surprise, he gave this guy the part, which was a pretty significant role. Over the next few months, they shot the film often in prison, and Salzman found it hard to believe that he had actually ever been set free. Once when they were filming on location in a penitentiary on Long Island, he fell asleep on a cot in a cell when he wasn't in one of the scenes. And when he woke up and looked around, he was just totally dazed and confused, and it seemed to him that his freedom had all been a dream. That, that he had always been behind bars, and he started weeping uncontrollably. 
But then, as his mind cleared, it came back to him. He really was a free man. The knowledge that he could walk out that cramped cell and through those prison doors whenever he chose just overwhelmed him with joy. On the other side of the prison walls was a, a real life, a free life. Those who have been set free by Christ can, regardless of their past, regardless of their failures, leave their slavery to sin and the condemnation that comes with it. Don't sit imprisoned by your sins. Follow your Savior to freedom. The freedom that he bought for you at great price. Now let's pray. Lord, you, better than we, knew what you were getting into with us. We dream that we're better than we are. You know exactly what we are. You know our faults and our failures and our sins. You see our weaknesses, know us to the core, and don't love us any less because of it. Show us that love and give us boldness to dare to try again. Not to work harder, but to trust our Savior. Help us where we are. Where you've come. We ask in the name of Jesus who sets us free. Amen. Amen.